Please stand for the reading of God's word. Ephesians 1, 3 through 10. Praise be to God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in the heavenly realms with spiritual blessing in Christ. For he chose us in him before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. In love he predestined us for adoption to sonship through Jesus Christ, in accordance with his pleasure and will, to praise of his glorious grace, which he has freely given us to the one he loves. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins in accordance with the riches of God's grace, that he lavished on us with all the wisdom and understanding. He made known to us the mystery of his accordance to his good pleasure which he purposed us in Christ, to be put in effect when the times reached their fulfillment, to bring unity to all things in heaven and on earth under Christ. Thank you, Gracie, and good morning, everybody. You can have a seat. Well, as Kerwin said, what a wonderful morning to get to worship together. One year of being in our building, which is just amazing when you think about it, just how many different seasons the Lord has brought this church through. And, it, and I was thinking this week, leading up to this Sunday, it's amazing to think of one year of worshiping together in here, but I wish all of you could see a year of what God is doing outside of here. That's the greatest thing about being the pastor is people usually tell you first what's going on that God is doing. And we've had great, triumphant, answered prayers, miracles happen this year. We've had suffering happen this year, and we've had God through it all just displaying his gifts and his bounty and his sustenance for us. It's been an amazing year as a church family. This morning, we're starting the book of Ephesians, and we're going to be in it for about 10 weeks. And there's no better way to start the book of Ephesians than to say Paul was in prison again. As he typically was, he was maximizing his time in prison. You know, Paul was not a guy to waste any moment. In fact, his prison times are some of his most fruitful times in ministry. He's writing letters. He's leading jailers to Christ He's singing and having worship services in the middle of the night, and God frees him. But in this particular case, he's doing one of his favorite things, which is writing a letter to a church that he loves, the church in Ephesus. Now, the letter to the Ephesians is different than any other letter in your New Testament. Here's why. Paul had spent three years in Ephesus. He had poured his life into the people in Ephesus, and yet at the beginning of this letter, there are no personal greetings. And in fact, at the end of this letter, there is no personal farewell, which is really odd for Paul, because if you look at the beginning and ends of his letters, it is filled with people that he wants to say hi to, hey, tell so-and-so this, and make sure that you tell this person to do what God's commanded them to do, and tell this person when I get there it's not going to go very well, and tell this person I say hi, and there's nothing like that at the end of Ephesians. And it's odd because even the letter to the Romans, which is a church that Paul's never even been to, he lists 30 people that he wants to say something to. So you get to Ephesians and you say, this is odd. Why is it that there's nobody mentioned here? But there's something else kind of weird about Ephesians. In every one of Paul's letters besides Ephesians, there is a practical ministry, pastoral reason that Paul is writing the letter. 
In Thessalonica, he writes two letters to make sure they understand what's going to happen when Christ returns. In Romans, which we kind of think of as Paul's like systematic theology, it's really on the occasion of, would you all give to the mission to reach the ends of the earth for Christ? But in Ephesians, there's no specific pastoral burden that Paul has. And you know what most scholars think is, we have some manuscripts of Ephesians that just have a blank space where it says, to the Ephesians. (laughs) And what most people think is, this is Paul's letter that he wrote when he was in prison in Rome to send to any church, anywhere, at any time. It is Paul's word. If you want to know something about Jesus, this is what you need to know. This one that we have to the Ephesians is probably similar to churches that he wrote this same thing to all over this region. That if you wanted to say something, what would Paul say? In fact, it's kind of an interesting thing to think if you were Paul and you were going to write a letter to every Christian in every church for all time, what would you say? What would you want them to know. And it's interesting what Paul wants the church in Ephesus to know. It's a magisterial letter. It's probably the most calorie-dense letter in your New Testament. It is packed with things he wants to tell them. But the theme of the book of Ephesians might catch you a little bit by surprise. It's in verse 10. He says, God has given me the mission of making known the riches of his grace which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known the mystery of his will according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time, and here it is, to unite all things in him. To unite all things in Christ. That's the theme of Ephesians, is everything finds its unity, everything finds its meaning, everything finds its center in Jesus Christ. This theme must have been on Paul's mind because the letters that he wrote in this particular imprisonment is probably Colossians and Ephesians and Philemon and Philippians. And in every one of those letters, Paul says something like this. In Colossians 1, he says, Christ is all. That's the plan for all of history that you would know that Christ is all. From him and through him and to him are all things. He is preeminent. He is the firstborn. There is no one greater than him. There is no one wider than he is with perspective to the universe. There is no one more worthy of honor and praise. Christ is all. In Philippians, he says, to live is Christ and to die is gain. It's all about him. And here we have him in Ephesians saying, you know what unites every molecule in the universe? Jesus Christ. He's the meaning of it all. He's the substance of it all. He is the vision of it all. He says he is the plan of it all. Now this word plan, Paul uses all over the place, and it's actually the word where we get the word economy from, which seems like kind of a leap because we think of economy as finances and money and countries, but The word economy comes from the Greek words that mean household management. So how do you run your household? How do you design a space where it is productive, it is loving, it is welcoming, it is supportive, and how do you have a family life that reflects your values and your intentions and the things that are important to you? And here's what Paul's saying. God is a household ruler in the universe, and he has certain values 
that he is utilizing to run his household. And he is creating a family that has certain bedrock principles. And here's the plan. Christ is the center. That's the family value of God. And so Christ is going to unite all things in the household of God. But this word unite, is, is, this happens sometimes when it's hard to bring it into English. And so what we have to do is we have to think there's several different angles for understanding this word. One of them is uniting, but it's, it's a uniting that is kind of like summing things up. In fact, this is what the word can be used in a technical sense, like drawing a line under a string of numbers and saying, what do they all add up to? What's the sum of all the things that God has been doing in history? What is the final bottom line? That bottom line is the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. In fact, God has no plans in the universe that don't sum up in Jesus. See, Paul uses this word in Romans 13 where he's talking about the law. He says, you know, all of the law, and he lists the Ten Commandments, you shall not murder, you shall not covet, you shall not steal, they are summed up in this word, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. All of the law, Jesus said, can be summarized. It can be added together to equal this. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, all your mind, all your strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. That is the summing up of the law. You actually can't get the law if you don't get that. And what Paul's saying here is the summing up means you can't get what God's doing if you don't get Jesus Christ. But there's one more angle, and this is what the word really literally means, recapitulation. Now, nobody uses the word recapitulation. That's why you don't see it in the translations. But this is what this word means. Capitulation comes from the word for head. It means putting all things under the headship of Christ. And I was thinking about this. I'm going to double took this week. I thought recapitulation is where we get the word recap. Okay, we use the word recap, but it is short for recapitulation. And the recap is what is the most essential piece of this? What is the summary? What is the theme? What is the sports center version of what happened? That's the recap. And this word means that everything that's ever happened, the recap is Christ. You cannot tell a single storyline in the history of the universe if you do not mention Christ. That's the audacious, giant claim that Paul is making here. God's plan is that no part of your life story could ever be told without Christ. He is the recap of your life. Whatever it is, whether it's the spiritual part of your life or your work life or your home life or your dreams and desires or your disappointments or your greatest joys, the recap of all those things would have to include Christ because he is the recap of everything. Everything exists through and for him. So Paul is challenging the Ephesians. I want you to imagine your life through the lens of Jesus uniting it all. It's all for him. It's all in him. It's all through him. Can you recap even a few minutes without thinking of what God has done for you in Jesus Christ? It's like the difference, and I must have been hungry when I wrote this down, but it's like the difference between McDonald's and Marble Slab. So go with me here. You walk into a McDonald's and you're ordering a McFlurry. And there's like an 80% chance that the machine is broken and you're not going to walk out of there with a McFlurry <laughs> anyway. But let's just say you do walk in and it is working and you do order a McFlurry. Well, when you get three bites into a McFlurry, what happens? It magically changes into soft serve. 
There is no more Oreo in there, no more M&Ms. They are about an inch deep in a McFlurry. And the rest of the McFlurry is just ice cream. Because the way the machines work and the way that they've decided to make these is it looks great on the surface. It looks like it's going to be awesome, but it's only about an inch deep. Now think about when you go to Marble Slab. When you go to Marble Slab, they take the ice cream and they spread it all out on the marble slab. Then they put the toppings in the middle and they use those special knives to make sure that they work it through so that there isn't any part of that ice cream that doesn't have toppings in it. In fact, when you get to the bottom of the cup, there are toppings in the bottom at Marble Slab. It is worked through, permeating every part of the ice cream. Now here's the thing, most Christians... Most of us imagine our lives where we practically function like McFlurries. Just sprinkle a little Jesus on the top of it. Just take your normal life and add a Jesus verse or veneer to it. Or take your whole life and designate a portion of it that Jesus is going to be a part of, and the rest of it is just like anybody else's life. That's not the life that God has for you in Christ. In fact, what God wants to do is he wants to take your life and stretch it out and make sure that every part of it is integrated with Jesus. The Christian life is not a Jesus add-on. It is a Jesus theme. Jesus in everything, permeating all of your stuff, all of your baggage, all of your joys. Jesus has to be a part of it. If you are his and he is in you, he gets all of it. Every part is filled so that when your life is poured out, the residue is Jesus. The fact that Jesus is in every part of it. Paul's thinking to himself in this jail cell. And at the end of Ephesians, he's saying, pray for me because I have so many opportunities in this jail cell. He's probably under house arrest at this point at the end of the book of Acts. And he's taking that as a ministry opportunity. It's just amazing that God put me here because there's so many opportunities for Christ to be magnified in my life, in this prison. See, Paul understood, if you really want to see God do things in your life, Jesus has to be the theme. He has to be the sum. He has to be the head. He has to be the recap. And so he's writing to the Ephesians saying, you guys remember what this looks like. See, if you go back to the book of Acts, in chapter 18, Paul arrives for the first time in Ephesus. And he stays there through chapter 19 for three years. And I can't help but think that one of the reasons Paul puts this in this letter to the Ephesians and to all churches is because he remembers what it looks like for this to be true. See, when, when Jesus comes in and unites your life, everything begins to change, and it starts with your identity. Your identity begins to change. Think about Paul's life. Paul had a very intact, socially forward identity. He was the top young Jew in Jerusalem. He, in fact, when he goes over his resume, he's like, as to the law, blameless. I was a Pharisee. In fact, I was, I was so, uh, he says, I was so zealous for what God was doing that I had surpassed all my peers in following what God had laid out for me. So much so that he created a new position for himself so that he could go and arrest Christians and make sure nobody stood in the way of what God was doing. And all of a sudden one day, he's on the road to Damascus and Jesus appears to him and knocks him off his horse onto the ground. He says, why are you persecuting me? And he says, I'm gonna make you my instrument to go before kings and Gentiles and to the ends of the earth to talk about what I have done through Jesus. And in that moment, Paul's life totally changed. 
His identity changed. He was no longer a Jew. Now he's a Christian. He was no longer a persecutor. He was now a trophy of the grace of God. In fact, he tells the Ephesians in chapter 3 of this gospel, I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace, which was given to me by the working of his power. To me, although I am the very least of the saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ and to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for the ages in God who created all things. So that through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. Everything about Paul's life changed when he met Jesus. He took on a new identity, and he was calling other people to walk in that same identity. This is like, does anybody remember the movie Air Force One? Okay, this, I watched part of this this week. This is a hokey old movie. But this, let me set it up for you if you haven't seen it or if you don't remember it. Because I'd imagine there's a lot of people that have watched it recently, but for, if you haven't. So Harrison Ford is the president. And he is on a mission to stop this Russian agent who is sabotaging the presidency. And the movie culminates in this great scene where they are on Air Force One and uh, Gary Oldman, who's the Russian villain, is attacking him. They have this scene where they're kind of hanging over the end of the airplane and finally Harrison Ford dispatches him. But Air Force One is so damaged that it can't continue to fly. So what he has to do is he has to board a different plane in the air. So he jumps and he hangs onto this rope at the end of this other plane. And the last scene of the movie is so tense because you've got Harrison Ford hanging on for dear life on this rope, and you've got the ground command calling into the plane, and they're saying, Liberty 2-4, do you have a read? And there's nothing because they're waiting. And Harrison Ford's climbing that rope, and he's coming up into the back of the plane. They're like, Liberty 2-4, do you have a reading? And finally, Harrison Ford steps onto the plane, and they radio in to the ground. They say, Liberty 2-4 is changing call signs. Liberty 2-4 is now Air Force One. You remember this? This is a great, great scene. Some of you guys are like, man, we were, I, I, spoiler alert, I was, I was going to watch that tonight. I was going to go to Blockbuster and get that, and we are going to watch it as a family tonight. But you've had your chance on this movie. But it's, it's this awesome final scene, and it really gets you revved up, and it's like it's changed to Air Force One. You know why? Because Air Force One is not a name of a plane. It's a call sign. It's an identity. It is a property that a plane has, and that property is when the president is on board, it is Air Force One. Whatever it used to be, whatever kind of plane it is, wherever it's going, no matter any other feature of the plane, if the president is on board, it is Air Force One. And any plane in the world could change from what it used to be to Air Force One by the presence of a single person on board, the president. And what Paul's saying about your identity is it doesn't really matter who you used to be. It doesn't matter what your sins were. It doesn't matter what you used to do. It doesn't matter who you used to run with. It doesn't matter what you used to base your identity in. If Christ is in your life, your call sign has now changed. In an instant, you went from who you are in sin to who you are in Christ, and now you have changed over like an old dead person, he says in chapter 2, to a new living child of God. Your identity in Christ has changed completely. And so Paul says, and I want to let you guys know, this could happen for anyone. 
This is God's plan. This is what God has been working towards, is bringing people from across the globe into his family, changing their identity, being in Christ. Seeing people come to know Christ and immediately take on the mission was Paul's driving principle. Paul even thought that God had set him apart from the beginning of time so that he might take the gospel to people who needed to hear it. So you could imagine, if people start to live like this, things really begin to change. And in Ephesus, things really did start to change. The first thing that changed was their everyday life. And what's so fascinating is we know a lot about what Paul was doing in Ephesus. We don't always get a good glimpse of what Paul's method was. Sometimes we think of Paul like this itinerant, lone wolf, revivalist preacher. He would just go into a town, preach a big revival sermon, people would believe, and then he would go on to the next town. But that's really not what Paul did. He sometimes had to do that because he was being dragged out of town and beaten to death, or he was arrested and thrown in prison and told never to come back. But Paul's desire was to be a local church pastor. See, the role of every pastor is the McFlurry versus the marble slab process. Get Jesus down into everything. That's what Paul thought he was doing. So he goes into Ephesus, and he spends three years there, not just in public, like at church services, but he says in Acts chapter 20, at homes, going house to house, in public, at our meetings, in every area of life you know that I preach to you the whole counsel of God. Now, Ephesus was a highly influential city in Greece. In fact, it is the greatest Greek city in the Roman Empire. It is huge by their standards. It probably had about 250,000 people, which made it the third largest city in the world at that time, behind Rome and Alexandria. It was strategic. It was on a trade route. And Paul set up shop there because he knew that if Ephesus changes everything changes. If Ephesus changes, the whole region changes. And so what he did was he took his work, his everyday life, and he began to see Christ as the unifying principle in his trade. Now, Paul was a tent maker, which means he effectively was a leather tanner. He made household goods. They would probably make things like saddles and tents for army contracts. And there was something really fortuitous that happened in Paul's life. When he was in Corinth, which is right before he comes to Ephesus, he met this couple named Priscilla and Aquila, or sometimes they're called Prisca and Aquila. And Priscilla and Aquila have a very interesting feature about them. We typically think of them because they rebuked Apollos, right? That's what everybody talks about with these two. It's like they took Apollos and they set him straight. But the most important thing about Prisca and Aquila is they had a multi-city franchise of tent makers, So they were business owners, and they had a home location in Corinth, in Rome, and in Ephesus. And when Paul first meets them in Corinth, they're living there, and they have a house church there because they've been kicked out of Rome by the emperor. All the Jews had to leave Rome. And so they left their business in Rome, and they went to their branch location in Corinth, and they started working there. And when Paul comes into Corinth, he begins working with them because they're in the same trade. And what happens when Paul comes to Corinth, from Corinth to Ephesus is he sets up shop in their leatherworking store in Ephesus. Now, the way you would do this trade in the ancient world is you would take on apprentices who would work with you in the mornings, and then everybody in the Greek world took a siesta in the afternoon. They didn't work in the heat of the day. They took off from two to four. And what Paul would do is he would work in the morning and train apprentices, make a living that way, and then in the afternoon, 
He rented the Hall of Tyrannus, which is a building like this where you can lecture every afternoon. So what Paul did was he made money through his work. He trained people in a craft so that they could go and do it across the world. He was teaching them what it means to live as a Christian tent maker. And then in the afternoons, he had this giant Sunday school class where he's teaching everybody in Ephesus the Hebrew scriptures. And in fact, things really blow up when Paul starts to do this because we know from the New Testament that people who heard Paul in Ephesus and learned about what Jesus was calling them to do and understood the mission that they had been sent, they started planting churches everywhere. So right around where Ephesus is, we know that Epaphras, who probably comes to know Christ in Ephesus, probably goes to Paul's lectures in the Hall of Tyrannus, says, I have got to take this to my hometown. And he's from Colossae, which is just a few miles away from Ephesus, and he plants the church there. And it's likely in this time that the churches of Laodicea and Hierapolis and Philadelphia and Smyrna, which are all in this area, get planted, not because of Paul, but because of people who caught the vision that God is summing up everything in Christ. And that means you've got to go back to where you're from, you've got to go back to work, you've got to go back to your family, and you've got to tell them what God is doing through Jesus Christ. So over just a few years in Ephesus, it wasn't just Ephesus that changed. It was people's daily lives, their work, their homes that were changing, and the whole region changed because of that. You know, I talk a lot about how great an opportunity we have here in Carlton Landing because we are a regional hub. We are not an Ephesus in terms of size. We are an Ephesus in terms of people. We have people from five major metro areas that are within about four hours of here that gather together here on the weekends and then scatter out into the surrounding cities. And every church has this opportunity, but we especially have the opportunity to take what God is doing in the community here and see so many people and so many things transform if we understand that it's not just about the hour on Sunday or on Wednesday nights. It's about your life being full of what God has done through Jesus Christ. And so their lives begin to change, and then their city begins to change. Their city begins to change. Now, Ephesus was known for one thing in the ancient world, the temple to Artemis, or it's called the Artemision, if you read it in primary sources. It was one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. It is huge. It's four times the size of the Parthenon. It had been there for 600 years by the time Paul arrived in Ephesus. It was the staple, the religious peace in Ephesus. And one historian at the turn of the century said, there was no other Greco-Roman metropolis in the empire whose body, soul, and spirit could be so belonging to a particular deity, as did Ephesus to her patron goddess, Artemis. Every person that came into Ephesus went to this temple. And everybody who lived and worked there paid dues to the temple. And everybody who wanted to be anybody in Ephesus would worship and buy idols to Artemis. It was just, if you wanted to go along, get along, that's what you did. So in Ephesus, you have a huge industry of idol makers for the temple of Artemis. In fact, you have a guild of silversmiths who make these little model temples that every home in Ephesus would have had. And the guild leader in Ephesus' name is Demetrius. And Demetrius realizes when he checks their financial statements that idol sales are going down as the number of Christians is going up. And he is not happy about it. 
So what they do is they get everybody all riled up and they bring them into this theater that's been excavated in Ephesus. And this theater seats 24,000 people. Right? That's 5,000 more people than the BOK Center or the Paycom Center holds. So this is a lot of people who are really upset about what is happening with these Christians in Ephesus. And Demetrius, in Acts chapter 19, calls the meeting to order, and he basically says to the people, look, if this continues, our whole way of life is going to be ruined. In fact, in Acts chapter 19, verse 25, he gathers them together. He says, men, you know that from these businesses, we have our wealth. And you see in here that not only in Ephesus, but in almost all of Asia, this Paul is persuading and turning people away, saying that the gods made with human hands are not gods. And there is danger not only that this trade of ours may come into disrepute, but also that the temple of the goddess Artemis may be counted as nothing, and she may even be deposed from her magnificence, she whom all of Asia and the world worship. When your life is transformed and your city is transformed, the cultural idols of your city are going to be under threat. And what happens in Ephesus is they would rather have a riot. They would rather just go into total anarchy than let the gospel continue. But God even uses that for his purposes. Because in the midst of this riot, they basically get Paul and he begins to quiet down the crowd and gets to preach a little bit about what God is doing through Jesus. Paul used every trial and every opportunity, every speaking moment to testify to what God was doing through Jesus Christ. And here's the message. Every part of your life, every little preaching and teaching, worshiping together, living, doing family devos, just singing songs in your heart transforms the world around you. If you really get that everything is united in Christ, even the city itself, even 600 years of idol worship are now on notice. Gods made with human hands are no gods at all. Amen. Only Jesus Christ. Now here's the last thing. The city changed, and because of that, the legacy changed. The legacy of their city changed forever. Because up until that point, the legacy of Ephesus, if you knew one thing about it was, those people worship Artemis. Those people have a beautiful Artemis temple. But what happened after Paul left there is, the city of Ephesus became the most important city for the gospel, except Jerusalem. In fact, there would be no church that would empower the mission of the Christian church like the church at Ephesus. See, Paul was there, Apollos was there, Priscilla and Aquila were there, but after they were there, Paul sent his own designated successor, Timothy, there. See, the letters 1 and 2 Timothy in your New Testament are written to Timothy, who's pastoring the church in Ephesus talking about how to continue to disciple and pastor the church there. And after Timothy, the apostle John, the last of the apostles, sets up his ministry in Ephesus so that he can serve the surrounding regions of these towns. And at the very end of John's life, Jesus, in the book of Revelation, writes a letter to the church at Ephesus about making sure they haven't lost their first love. The church at Ephesus, their legacy was changed forever. Because a small group, we're not talking a megachurch in Ephesus, we're talking a few dozen people realized Jesus is all. The cross is all. Jesus is unifying every part of our lives. He is the theme. Paul ends his letter to the Ephesians by reminding them of this reality. Keep me in your prayers, he says. I've got all these opportunities. I don't want to miss them. 
At the end of the book of Ephesians, Paul gives them a prayer request for him. Pray that I might be bold. Imagine Paul praying that. Pray that I might be bold so that I might do what God has called me to do because in verse 20 of chapter 6, I am an ambassador in chains for the gospel of Christ. You know, shortly after this, Paul was put to death. He probably came out of this imprisonment, went to Spain or somewhere, and came back and was hauled into a real prison and went on trial. And in 2 Timothy, we see him saying, everybody has abandoned me. And God stood by me and strengthened me. But Timothy, this is it. Sure enough, Paul was beheaded probably during the reign of Nero. Same thing with Peter. Many disciples were martyred. And after this, the church actually went through one of the worst times of persecution in history. The reign of Domitian, especially a generation later, Christians were killed by the dozens. In the Colosseum, Christians were hauled in. They were fed to wild animals. They were lit on fire. They were tried to stamp out the Christian movement in Rome. But even the legacy of Rome has changed for Christ. Because if you go to the Colosseum today, you don't have a monument to the power of the Roman empires to kill Christians. Instead, right above the box where the emperor sat, today, you have a cross. The cross of Christ in the Colosseum of Rome, where hundreds of Christians were killed as a seed for what God was doing in Jesus. The legacy of the greatest empire in the history of the world at that time is the cross. Why do we know about Rome? Because a peasant from Nazareth, born in Bethlehem, was crucified by the Romans and rose from the dead. And now his cross stands over the might of the Colosseum forever. Because here's the thing. There's this, this is a subtle point I don't want you to miss. It's not just that Jesus is going to unite all things. It's not just that if we trust in him enough, then maybe he could do something amazing. It's not like he's running for office or something where if we just get out the vote and everybody starts to trust in him, then maybe Jesus would amount to something. That's not the message. The message is Jesus is uniting all things. And in the end, he will be triumphant over everything. God has made his son, Jesus, Lord and Christ over everything. The question is not, is it going to pan out? The question is, are you going to be a part of it? Amen. Are you going to be a part of it? Are you going to have a thin veneer of Jesus in your life, or is Jesus going to unite and recap everything in your life? Can you tell any story of your life without Jesus? Because the story of the universe will be a story of what God has done through his son, Jesus, to glorify him, to save sinners, to reunite the family of God, and that's our story. Let's pray. Father, we praise you that you have made your son the heir of everything. Father, there is no hesitation, no calculated risk. Father, there is nothing that can stand in the way of the fact that your son will be glorified forever. Father, thank you for inviting us into it. Father, show us that even the areas of our own strength are permeated by your grace for us. Father, help us to see that by your spirit, you have put us on the same mission that you put Paul on. And that, Father, the same things that happen in Paul's life can happen in our lives, that we too can tell our friends and our family members about what you've done. We can see them come to know you. We can see them change. We can see our businesses and our city change. We can see the idols of our culture recede. But it has to start, Lord, by you showing us 
that you are the center of everything in our life. So, Father, I pray this morning you would fill us with your spirit, that you'd open our eyes like scales falling falling off Paul's eyes, that we would see what you're up to in our lives. Father, give us the courage to follow you. Lord, give us your grace. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.